Well, at the end of Peter's life here on earth, which is what we find in this letter, he wants us to do just one thing. He wants us to go back to the beginning of our life in Christ. See, Peter knows that for Christians, going forward means first really going back to the basics of faith. And so in a passage that's all about our spiritual growth, first he wants to check to make sure that our roots run deep. So before we get to that passage we just heard about supplementing our faith with goodness, we have to remember how, as Peter tells us, that it's God's divine power that equips us for life here on earth. And it's into God's divine nature that we hope to grow until our life here on earth becomes our new life and a new earth. And so we can divide our passage this morning, I think, into two distinct parts. First, we have verses 3-4. through which is all about our roots. Namely, God's precious promises to us that we have already acquired, that have already been settled for us in Christ. So that's the first thing we'll discuss this morning. Secondly, we'll look at verses 5-11, through which is not about our roots, but is about our growth. Namely, this is Peter's plea to us to prove our calling and election to make sure those roots really do run deep so that we might become more like Christ. And so this morning, I want to focus for us as a church on the goodness of growth. We might also say the growth of goodness, but I like that other way a little bit more. To focus on the goodness of growth. I think as Christians, It's easy to get into our ruts and settled into our routines. Those can be good. But when we stop growing, we find ourselves having a problem. When we as Christians stop growing, and I feel like I'm growing every year. I'm growing up a pant size, and I'm growing a little bit more exasperated. I'm growing a little bit more tired and impatient. That's not the kind of growing I should be doing, or any of us for that matter. But for a Christian to stop growing in grace, to stop growing in humility, to stop growing in love, that's a serious problem for Peter. Peter says that these kind of people that claim to be Christians but stop growing, he says that they're blind at best and they're blasphemous at worst. Because they've forgotten that they've been cleansed of their past sins. They've forgotten the power of that. And so, uh, there's no hope of them not being corrupted by future sins because they're not growing and changing. And so this is serious business, church. What Peter tells us about this morning is not something that we can just kind of brush off to the side as something tertiary to our faith. No, this is central to what it means to be a faithful Christian. And so, Peter explicitly tells us towards the end of this passage what's at stake. He says, entry into the kingdom of God is what's at stake here. That's what's tied up with our growth and our 
are uh, becoming more Christ-like. So it, it's important that we pay close attention, I think, to the text this morning, because the text tells us in turn to pay close attention to our own spiritual lives. But let's be clear. The text is not telling us, and Peter's not telling us, that we need to pay attention to our lives so we can rely on our own goodness to be saved. That's not what he's saying at all. He is saying we need to pay close attention to our lives in order to see that we can rely on God's goodness in us, growing in us for our salvation. But before we dive into this passage today, just a a quick reminder of where we've come from and where we were last week. So this is, as you know, Peter's final letter to the New Testament church. He's writing to a bunch of scattered Christians all over a, a region called Asia Minor. He's not even writing to specific churches or congregations. He's just writing to anybody that can be uh, on the receiving end of this letter. And so, to me, that feels very similar to our own day and age when the church is largely decentralized and we're scattered all over the place and we're all sorts of denominations and traditions. And some of us, because of the pandemic, have not been able to be in church as much. It feels like this is a needed letter to us. So this is Peter's last will and testament, functionally speaking, theologically speaking. And what he wants for these Christians and for us more than anything is for us not to be led astray. We've come so far. Don't be led off a cliff in the end. He doesn't want us to wander away from right belief. But he also doesn't want us to be misguided away from the good works that we were once doing. And so he doesn't want us to become like these religious hypocrites. Who, by the way, this is sobering, they call themselves Christians. There's people in the Bible that are opponents of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter that say they're Christians. Just saying you're a Christian doesn't mean that you necessarily are one. Not in any real tangible sense. Because these people say they're Christians. But they also simultaneously will deny Jesus' resurrection. They'll deny His return. They'll say this is all kind of metaphorical. This is just, you know, this is good. These are good fables. They're no different. Like I said last week, I think. They're no different than Grimm's fairy tales or Aesop's fables. You get good moral wisdom, but they're not real. They're just clever myths. And so, you can go about living any way that you want to. You can give in to every lust. You can pursue every greed. All this stuff doesn't matter anyway. But Peter wants us to keep our eyes wide open. Because there are people parading around out there that would have us distracted to not keep the main thing, the main thing, so to speak. He wants us to keep our eyes wide open instead to the spiritual reality that's all around us. And so Peter is preaching apocalyptically. We talked about that a lot last week. Apocalyptically. That doesn't mean, contrary to popular culture, that doesn't mean that, this is, uh, that Peter is uh, preaching in some way about some looming global disaster with zombies or werewolves or whatever we've seen on TV at, on, at night. That's not what apocalypse means. No, apocalypse is, is, is a revealing, a revealing of a divine and heavenly perspective. So God is removing the spiritual scales f- 
from our eyes through Peter and revealing his divine perspective on life to us. He doesn't want us taken in by myths to be paranoid about things that will never happen. He wants us to see the real threat. And so, at this point, as we get into our passage this morning, we need to ask, what exactly is it that Peter's trying to get us to see? Why is he seemingly so, I don't want to use the word frantic or desperate, but why in his, in his last words, seemingly, ever written down, why is, why is he wanting us to, to, to see these things so clearly? What is he apocalypsing to us, so to speak? Well, last week, Peter prayed that grace and peace would be multiplied to us through the knowledge of God in Jesus. But how does that happen? And that's what we get to this morning. So first and foremost, looking in verses 3 and 4. We will grow in grace and peace. It will be multiplied in us through the knowledge of God in Jesus if we begin by reminding ourselves of our spiritual roots well, what's that what are our spiritual roots peter says a couple things here he says it is god's divine power in us and his divine nature for us those are our roots as christians these aren't things that we achieve or acquire notice these things have already been provided they've already been given we've already fully received them in jesus As Christians, we already have divine power, which he defines as a personal, active, intimate knowledge of who God is and who we are in response to God. That's divine power. And we've already been invited to share in God's divine life and nature. That is to to receive the things of godliness and to participate in God's action and presence and being and everything else in other words to be a part of god's life even here on earth his divine power his divine nature these things we already have those are our roots we don't go out looking for them we don't go trying to chase them we don't have to live an indiana jones lifestyle going into the temple of doom which may just be a Baptist church to some people, looking for God's power in His nature, it's already ours. Tom Wright, the New Testament scholar and English pastor, says it this way when reflecting on these eight or nine verses. He says, all too often people think that the Christian faith is all about what God wants from us. What it means to be a Christian is we, it's just about good behavior and renunciation of things we like and kind of a gritted teeth morality of forcing ourselves to behave. That's what people think Christianity is. That's what some Christians think the Christian faith is. But this is a total caricature, he says. Because here in verses 3-11, through 11, we see the truth. First, God has already given us everything we need. It's already been done. It's done already. And secondly, God is doing this because He wants nothing less for us than that we should share in His very own nature. In other words, what does that mean? That means that 
People think that being a Christian means striving really hard to be a better person and doing that, doing good things and being kind of a Mother Teresa to the world and so God will like you more and He won't punish you for all those little naughty things you do. That's a wrong conception of the Christian faith. That's not what the New Testament says. I know a lot of Christians may say that's what being a Christian is. But being a Christian is having already, and by faith in Jesus, having everything you need already, and it's God inviting you into a better way of living, being a part of His life, being in eternal peace and joy and righteousness and goodness with Him in all of glory. That's what God wants for you. I think we're so intimidated as Christians by the idea of, uh, of spiritual discipline and growth and dying to ourselves. Because, first of all, I don't think we think that we'll actually be able to pull it off. We know ourselves too well. We know that we can look clean and presentable on Sunday morning, but we can go home and be so irritate, irritated with everybody in the house. We're just we're mad at our family. I know it's Father's Day, but we're going to get angry at our husbands and fathers and sons or whoever else, and we'll think, what is, what is this? Why am I doing this? We know ourselves so well. We know that growth and, and change and transformation doesn't seem like it's achievable for us. So I, I think we get skeptical and intimidated about the idea of growing because of that. But secondly, I, I think we think that this means that we'll have to give up the, the little modicum of joy we have in this life. To be godly, we'll have to become totally morose and we won't be any fun at anybody's party. Even the, 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 the super legalist Christians down the street, we'll even, be, we'll even be a bummer at that kind of a party. So we, we're afraid, I think, to grow because we think that that means that, first of all, we're not going to be able to pull it off, and secondly, it's going to make us so boring and awful, and just, it's going, to, it's, it's going to be life, but it's not going to seem like life. But the point of these verses, that Peter is trying to get these tired and beleaguered Christians, and us, who are probably pretty tired and beleaguered a lot, he's trying to get us to understand we already have everything we need. We don't need to go looking for it. We don't need to go get a better job. We don't need to go get another education. We don't need to go spend a lot of money. We don't need to work our way up the social ladder. We don't have to move to a better better neighborhood. We don't have to get our life together. God has already given us everything we need. His divine power, Peter says in verse 3, has already given you everything required. Already, everything required for a godly life by knowing Jesus, who called us by His glory and by His goodness. This means that God has empowered us to just live our lives. We can be godly, not because we're getting our act together, scrambling or pretending like we're not, we are anything different than what we are. We can be godly because we have real experiential knowledge of who God is already. And in verse 4, we're given hope that, ev- that eventually, even though we are just, just like blind mole rats bumping into each other 
here on earth. That's what it feels like sometimes. Not knowing where we're going or what we're supposed to be doing. Eventually, verse 4 tells us that our lives will be fully merged with God's life. We are already partakers in His divine natures and we will be full participants going forward. That reality is coming one way or the other. It's not up to us to make it that way. It's not us to up, it's not us to, up to us to get to that point. God is already doing that in us. That's coming. This is an aside, but I can't remember who said this, but somebody from my past said that so often we're, we are, we're scared of the future. I know I get freaked out thinking about the future, looking at the wow, what the housing market is like right now and, the, and just the social unrest in the country and just reading about all these new phenomena. Oh, this new thing causes cancer. Oh, check out how your phone is malforming your brain in this totally new, terrifying way. Oh, guess what? There's this new species of, of, of bacteria that's growing in South America. It'll be here in a year. You read all that stuff and you think, I'm going to go insane. The future is nothing but traps and death and in despair. I can't remember who said this. I wish I could. But he says, no, God is what's in the future for us. God, through Christ, is coming from the future, bringing His glory to us into the present. That's what the Christian has awaiting ahead of them. The future is not about fear. It's not about, uh, it's, it's not about destruction. The future is about God coming to be with us in the present. And so, what we see of the future now is that God is shaping us in such a way by this power that He's giving to us that one day our lives with the Father, Son, and Spirit will be fully enraptured and, and caught up in one another. God will spend the rest of eternity enjoying our presence and vice versa. And because that's already begun in Christ. Because we already have access to that through faith in God. The faithfulness of Christ is even more important than our faith in a way. That is what our faith is made of anyways. It's not our just believing, you know, our, our willpower to believe. It's the, the, the substance of the thing and the person in which we believe, which is Jesus who's totally faithful. And so, because that's already begun, we are already, Peter says, beginning to escape the corruption of this world. Namely, death. The way it takes from us. We're beginning to, uh, we're beginning to, dis, to, to be disentangled and freed from the evil desires of sin. And Peter's point is that all of that is true for us now. We already have God's divine power in us now to live Christ-like lives, filled with knowledge and goodness. And we're already headed towards God's future. Or should we say that God's future is already headed towards us? Maybe that's the better way to put it. Because sometimes it feels like we're standing and still and not moving anywhere. Well, God is barreling towards us to release us. And so we know that one day we'll be fully in sync with His desires and will and love. And we won't have to wrestle with any of this stuff anymore. These are our roots. 
And we already have them. Whether we feel like we do or not, we do. But that's half the story. Because in the second portion of Peter's message, in verses 5-11, through 11, he talks about the importance, the goodness of our growth. So in verses 5-11, through 11, he tackles our part of the story. Now, as an important preface, I feel like we need to say this. We do believe, as a church, that it's God who creates us and who calls us out of our sinful estate. He regenerates us and He resurrects us. God initiates our salvation and He brings it to completion. Our life, both physical, spiritual, our existence begins and ends in Him who is Alpha and Omega. Let's get that on the table. We believe that. That's true. But, Christians, don't use that knowledge as an excuse to be disobedient to this call to grow spiritually. You're only fighting against... You're, see, the sad thing is, you think you're resisting something that will make your life hard, but what you're doing actually is fighting against God trying to make your life filled with joy. You're fighting against Him giving you life. You're struggling. You can't breathe. You're suffocated. You're anxious. And He is trying to calm you down and give you the future that you need. Don't fight Him. The Lord expects of us. He even commands us to partner with Him in our transformation. And so Peter says in this next verse, for this very reason, which is that God has already given us everything, we've need, everything we need, now Christians make every effort to supplement your God-gifted faith with these seven things. I'll read them off. First, goodness. Second, knowledge. Third, self-control. Fourth, endurance. Fifth, godliness. Sixth, brotherly affection. And seven, love. So let's look at these one by one. These are things that God tells you to grow into. Actively work after growing into these things. Let's look at what they mean. First, goodness. He starts by calling us, because we have faith, because God has already given us His divine power and is, and is, is coming to, to indwell us with His divine nature, because that's already true, he tells us first to grow into goodness. Or we might say virtue. So in the ancient world, this is the broadest possible category for saying something is, is, is good or virtuous or honorable. So it looks like a life, for instance, it's full of courage and honesty and generosity and all the other things that honorable people have in their lives. And so... We're being called here as the first step to supplementing our faith is striving to live an honorable life. A life that is filled with goodness in some way. This is broad, and so it can cover a lot of different things. But I have a sense that we as Christians who have the Holy Spirit residing in us, I think if we're careful and attentive to the Spirit, we'll know what growing in goodness means. We'll know what's really honorable. 
we'll know because the, the Spirit will convict us if we do something we're not supposed to be doing or if we're only caring about ourselves, not about other people. He'll, he'll make us feel that. And so I'm convinced just listening to the Spirit about these things is, is how you become aware of what virtue looks like, practically speaking. So we need to become people that grow in our virtues and, and all the good things that we can. That's a, just a scattershot, broad category. But second, he gets a little bit more specific here. Next, he tells us to add to that knowledge. I think this knowledge, in addition to being an intimate, personal knowledge of God, I think it has as a subcategory of that an intellectual knowledge. But what do I mean by that? I think this knowledge is intimate because it's about God, but I think it's intellectual because it's also about being a kind of Christian that opens our minds to the wonders of God's creation. You know, I think one of the things that sin does for us that's so deadly is that it bends every part of our existence, our minds, our wills, our hearts, our desires, our bodies. I mean, we, we are spirits. We all know that. I think it, sin deadens our mind because it makes us deeply incurious about God's world. It makes us apathetic to knowing one another. It makes us like our ignorance because we like ignorance because we can ignore anything that doesn't have to do with us. But I think when we're to grow in knowledge, we're to be like Solomon in some ways. Not in the... 700 wives stages of life, I should be clear. But in the stage where it talks about Solomon, when he prayed that God would give him knowledge and wisdom, it made him a man that cared about everything under God's good, uh, everything under the sun, everything in God's good earth. We, we read in scriptures recently that as Solomon grew in wisdom, he, he could say a lot about plants and animals. And I, I would imagine that he could say a lot about people and the, the planet and the stars and science and art and philosophy and on and on. And so I'm not saying that growing in knowledge means that we have to get a PhD in everything. I think growing in knowledge humbles us in such a way that we realize this world, the image bearers that God put in our lives are amazing. And it, it, it behooves us to be people that that, that stop thinking about ourselves all the time and start thinking about, isn't it incredible how, how God has, has made this world and made each other in such a way that it reflects His glory. My wife and I went to uh, Randy's Nursery over in Lawrenceville, and we got some flowers for our flower bed out front. I made a mistake this year where I planted some seeds that I have for flowers I didn't know, and I put something called cosmos in the, in the front part of the bed, and these things grow tall, like three feet tall. And so I, we cultivated this beautiful back row. Everything is measured and put. It's in balance. And then me, an idiot, puts all this, these wild flowers that grow tall, and you can't see any of the flowers that we have in the back. It looks like we're just rednecks at this house because we just have weeds, it looks like, that we're cultivating in our front yard. That's beside the point. But the point was is that I, after feeling just kind of discouraged that day, 
we went to this nursery, and they had a, you know, uh, a koi pond with these beautiful Japanese fish. Some of them were like $1,000 for one of these big fish just to have. But I was looking at these things and, and looking at them and thinking, this is so amazing that this thing exists. I couldn't get over just how just uncanny it was looking at this other creature that God designed as some sort of a mind and maybe not a huge one because it's a fish, but it has its mind and an instinct and it's beautiful and it's, it's needlessly colorful. There's no reason for it to be that colorful and beautiful other than to reflect the glory of God. And we, I walked through all those flowers and looking at the, the variety and the kind and I just, was, I just realized I didn't know anything about anything. I felt like Job. I felt so, uh, you know, woe is me earlier that day. And then I just start, God started taking me through a tour of His creation. And I thought, what am I doing? Why am I discouraged? Why am I downcast? Look at this amazing world that God has made. God calls us, I think, to be knowledgeable because it will help us to worship God. And it will help us to care about each other. When we see that it's good to learn about things that we don't know about, that calls us into holiness. It calls us into a life of goodness. Moving on. The third thing, self-control. This is something that I think we all struggle with to different areas. But self-control is applied wisdom. It's knowing when to put a boundary and an end on things because there's a lot of good things out in the world. It's wonderful to eat fried chicken, but eating that and without moderation will kill you. God created us to, to live within boundaries of wisdom and moderation, and so this keeps us from unhealthy addiction and obsession, even with good things that would lead us off a cliff. And so, as we grow in our goodness, as we grow in our knowledge, God tempers that with self-control that our desire to know more, to, to, to grow in our honor, doesn't become something we're so obsessed with that it ends up we use all those gifts that God gives us on ourselves. Fourth, we need to add to this endurance. This has to do with strength and longevity. This life is difficult. First Peter tells us that Life has a lot of suffering in it. And so we need to add to uh, our self-control endurance so we can endure the difficulties, so we can have the self-control for the long haul, and so we can be around longer and, and continue to bless the world around us and to be resilient from the temptations and distractions of the world. Fifth, he tells us to grow in godliness. Again, this is what 1 Peter is really about. Learning as Christians how to suffer and submit and serve others well to the glory of God and for the good of other people, even when it hurts. That's what godliness looks like. It's such a devotion to Christ. It's such a devotion to God that we, um, it's not about us becoming or being self-righteously better than other people, but us being so devoted to God, so devoted to Christ that even when others try to hurt us, we respond with godliness. Namely, we respond by being Christ-like to people. Forgiving, compassionate, patient. And so to this, he also adds brotherly affection. 
which is simply caring about one another. It's the simple task of inviting each other to eat with one another, of helping each other when we're down and out, when we're tired or broke or discouraged or whatever. We're family. And so this is, these are our brothers and sisters out here. And so just like we care about our brothers and sisters that we were raised with, so do we care deeply about one another. And finally, Peter adds to all this the real crowning achievement of our active life of faith is to add to this all love, which Paul says is the greatest of virtues. It's an overflowing kind of love. It's a love of God that's so full. I'm convinced that when you try to live an honorable life and you become knowledgeable about God's world and you're self-controlled in your passions and you're enduring the difficulties and you're godly for the sake of other people and you're affectionate towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm convinced when you're overflowing with that kind of love of God, it spills into the world around you in the most wonderful ways. Blessing other people. Jesus talks about how this looks like feeding the hungry and watering the thirsty and welcoming the stranger and clothing the naked and caring for the sick and visiting the prisoner and pleading for the cause of those that can't plead for themselves, the widows and the orphans alike. Namely, we become loving towards the world. We love God so much we become loving towards the world in such a way that we start to look like Jesus looked when He was ministering here on earth. Love is God's goodness in action. And so these seven attributes form what some have called a golden chain of goodness. These are the things that we must strive to grow in as Christians. Add these things to your life. Because after all, God in saving us from ourselves and to Himself saved us in order for us to become more like Christ and to, dis- and to share in His divine nature And what better way can we share in God's divine nature than to ourselves become conduits of love and goodness, of glory and grace flowing out into the world? And the Old Testament, when God talks about the end of all things, when we see these these prophetic visions in Isaiah and Jeremiah, so often God talks about people becoming streams of water that flow out from Zion and water the entire planet. The goodness of God, the living water, the eternal water of Jesus flows out through us into the world, transforming it into the paradise God always intended. And so Christians, that is coming one day. God is making that world he is, he is transforming the world into that thing. And so in the meantime, while you have a chance, root out as many self-serving distractions in your life as possible. And instead, be rooted in God's life-giving power and loving nature. Supplement your faith in what Christ has done for you by actively striving to live as He lived for us. For, Peter writes in verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, 
they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a sobering reality that we need to think about. Church, beware! Peter says you can call yourself a Christian and live a useless life that's withering because you don't have love and goodness in it. You can be totally fruitless to the kingdom of God in the here and the now if you only care about yourself and your own business and not growing in goodness. And Peter has a very unflattering assessment of Christians who claim Christ but don't grow in goodness. Because in verse 9 he says, the person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Friends, don't dishonor Christ. Don't do a disservice to yourself and others by forgetting that you were saved from your sins so that you could grow into your salvation. Brothers and sisters, I echo Peter's words in verse 10. And I think there's no more important thing that you can do with your life this coming week than to make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. I've stumbled a lot in my life. I get tired of stumbling. If we grow in these things and we confirm that that calling and election in us was authentic, that will keep us from stumbling. Does growing in goodness and love mean that we won't struggle anymore though? Does it mean that we'll never get hurt? or confused, and that life will always just be simple and go well for us? No. Not if we've been paying attention. We know that life will still have all of its challenges and plenty of suffering in it. But what Peter is telling us is that we will be able to live in a kind of certainty with a comforted heart because as we watch ourselves grow in godliness, as we see the goodness of growth in our own life, then we'll know, we will know that entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for us. So you notice how this passage begins. It begins by Peter saying, these things are true of you, God's power and His nature. Now because, you're, because God has provided everything you're, you've needed, you have the freedom, you have the protection to Work on growing, striving for those things, challenging yourself, pushing yourself to grow more like Christ. Because, in the end, entrance into God's kingdom, entrance into God's life, will be provided for you. See, even growing doesn't mean that you are entering into, you are the one that's making entrance into the kingdom of God. God's even providing that for you. So it begins with God doing something surely for you and it ends with God doing something surely for you. So Christians, remember Him who gave you your roots. Him who gave you the divine power to be godly. That is, devoted to Christ. Him that gives you the hope that God's divine nature is coming to live with us from the future. And the entrance into the kingdom of heaven 
is provided for you. And so Christian, be free then to live a life of growth and goodness. Let's pray. Lord, remind us that You who began this good work in us promised to complete it no matter what in the day of Jesus Christ. For it's in His name and power and nature we pray. Amen.